This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballerman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballerman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 167, brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Toby Taupitz, founder of Innovative, a word I use rarely, InsureTech, Lacquer. Aligning interests is much spoken about, but little done. Over two and a half years ago, when Toby was last on the show, he spoke about the founding belief of Lacquer as being to align their economic interests with the client's economic interests. Now, we hear this all the time, but it's rarely 100% true. In Lacquer's case, I believe it is, or Toby can tell us if it's only 99% true later, as they do not take payment for insurance up front, but rather earn money when they pay out on a claim. The opposite of the insurance industry, as I found this year with our insurance on our skiing holiday. It's a back to the future approach, back to the origins of insurance as being collectives, cooperatives of say, Swiss dairy farmers up and up, bonding together for mutual, a word I use deliberately, support. Well, two and a half years ago, it sounded like a, a wonderful idea to form a commune where everyone's interests are aligned, but one that would need careful parameterization. As with anything in life, one needs to balance compassion for others with compassion for yourself. All too many, for example, teachers, doctors, etc., go into their profession with the best will in the world to help people, but some come out of it decades later, bitter and cynical. In the same way, you can set up a company tomorrow that is totally 100.00% focused on client value, but if you are 100% on client value, then that tends to mean, or in some cases, 0% focus and 0% value for your business, and at some point you go bust, which doesn't really help the clients in the long run. So let's dive into looking at a truly aligned insurtech where clients and lacquer's interests are the same. How has the model worked out compared to expectations? Is it easy? Is it hard? Is it widespread? Is it catching on elsewhere? What does the future hold? Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Toby. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Pleasure to be back. Thanks, Mike. So last time when you were on, we were together in the same room. Now we live in this sort of virtualized world, and there are many challenges of the virtualized world, one of which is that one just sort of slobs at one's desk all day. I have actually, after a couple of episodes ago, had Alex Baluta on the show and he had a standing desk. Now I've got a standing desk, but I have to say it wasn't used for many years. However, now I'm actually on to doing, you know, one hour or an hour and a half standing at my desk every day. And, and this week, after the latest tyranny where the data is now falling apart over lockdown, as being shown as a bunch of lies, I did come up with a project November and I calculated how many times I need to walk up and down the stairs every day to amount to at the end of the November, having climbed Scarfell, England's highest mountain. So um, I'm busy walking up and down the stairs five times, three times a day, which sounds fairly easy when you come up with it as a great idea. But I think, <laughs> I think after a while, my legs are going to get a bit tired. But at least that sort of gets me going from the desk, which I've been failing to dismally. However, you're young, fitter, faster, got hair, got all the sort of things that I no longer have, you know, teeth, two legs, two arms, that kind of stuff. And you were saying that rather than being a sort of amateur like I, you're, you're much more into actually getting fit rather than just avoiding being a complete slob, which I think is my actual plan. <laughs> well, we all keep trying, don't we, in whatever shape or form. I'm a big believer of 
home fitness, or rather I, I, I converted as of late in the many great ways, especially with Laka's focus around cycling. There are many great ways of doing so. Many in the team, for instance, have a turbo trainer, so they would just take their bike and use their actual road bike for a spin in the living room. I, for one, we have a, a Peloton as of late, so proud acquirers of those trends. And yeah, actually anything you can do from home is, is just amazing to get you, you moving. Yes. Now, I heard of Peloton once or twice, but like most things that have happened after the Beatles had got to number one, I'm not so familiar with it. So maybe there are one or two listeners who actually, like me, aren't entirely familiar with the Peloton machine, but it's a hot and sexy, souped up home bike. I mean, what does it actually amount to? What does it actually do for you? So in a way, it is a spinning bike that you use from home. It comes with a screen you can download. And a spinning bike, by the way, let's define terms. It is a bike that you use in your office or your living room, basically, in the purest sense of of the word. And it just gets you going indoors. You can cycle um, um, away indoors and it comes with a a fancy screen um, with fitness classes you can follow and pursue so it's a bit of a guided quite hyped um, version at the moment of the traditional fitness um, spinning bike and we bought a few years ago and occasionally use it for something other than sort of hanging clothes off a home exercise bike i mean it was quite a pricey one it it was about 600 quid or something it's not some cheap everything but at the time i recall a spinning bike was some somehow different i mean it was super hyped but wasn't it something like it's got a fixed gear or something different? What is different about a spinning bike as opposed to a good quality home exercise bike? To be honest, it's probably quite similar. What you can do is you can change resistance and it's all about resistance and cadence. But again, it's in a way, it's a traditional um, product that's been um, put into a different corset and make it a bit more funky. I think it's all about, um, and again, quite in reference to lacquer, I'm triggering a community um, which I do quite well. There's a lot of chatter on, on Facebook and other forums, for instance, and people just take part in, in competitions and challenge each other. So again, it's more like a guided spinning class from home, if you really want. Oh, I see. Yes. the I mean, I, I don't know how the software works, but the challenge with these, as with most tech products, is software and updates and that, in that the bike we bought had a facility to run it uh, alongside an app via Bluetooth, which used Google Maps and, sh- and, and actually did the terrain and showed you the sort of, you know, the street view and all that kind of stuff. So Bridget very conscientiously set off to do Lan Zen to John O'Groats and actually did cycle all the way through Cornwall, which she found sort of very interesting because actually you're not just sort of staring at the bloody wall or whatever you're doing at home or something like that. And the resistance varied as it did at Cornwall and hopefully by the time you get to Scotland, your legs are a bit stronger. But then, um, quotes, the app stopped working and the vendor said, well, you know, we don't do the app kind of stuff. At which point, the expensive functionality that you think you bought, you've been locked into something which no longer works and that they wash their hands of it. And unsurprisingly, actually, the lack of that functionality made a huge difference in terms of the, the usage. I think no matter what you think of Peloton, I think what they do quite well, but the Apple approach, hardware plus software. And I think that allows them um, to have a beautiful experience, beautiful design experience front to end, the content, the app itself and uh, the hardware. And I think that works quite well for them, especially in a situation as we have it at the moment. Yes, exactly. And I think you know, from a business model perspective, it's very easy to create some product and get lots of marketing and push it out there. But in terms of the long term, leading nicely into, into lacquer, of course, one's brand is quite hard to establish for a new venture, but it's pretty easy to piss it away. <laughs> you know, as many businesses have found, you only need you know, one scandal, one catastrophe or something, and then you've lost trust. And in a world such as we are, even before lockdown, trust is the most valued commodity, as I'm sure you find day in, day out 
at Laka, um, just as it is in all human relationships. If you trust somebody, you'll forgive them mistakes and errors and all that kind of stuff. Whereas, as the Oxford people were pointing out about the, the UK dodgy data used for lockdown, all of these so-called errors, unquotes, in the UK data have all been on, on one side, which is massively hyping up the, the fear and all that kind of stuff. So the trust is breaking down and that's a sort of dangerous situation. So before we get into trust, and uh, obviously one of the good ways to, to trust an insurance company is that actually they do look after you. And like I shall not mention HSBC, uh, who were the people who did our travel insurance, where once you've lost trust, you can't really get it back very easily. So before we go into how community-based insurance, or whatever you call yourself, can create trust, I've forgotten, uh, extraordinarily enough, I've forgotten uh, the entire details of your career journey, or maybe not the entire details, but just sort of the, uh, even the big picture overview. With pleasure. So I've been tainted from the early days. My dad is an insurance broker, home in Germany, so I grew up with the topic, went to German way of education, studied insurance business and apprenticeship and the likes. Ran away from it as fast as I could after that um, to start in corporate finance and came over to London in late 2013, seven years ago now, to start um, working in, um, in, at Barclays doing corporate finance M&A. And was quite lucky there. I focused on fintech and insurance clients at the same time. And at some point, these two worlds would just come together and start asking some basic questions. What is insurance and does it make sense? And that was the moment Laka was born, in my head at least. And so when was Laka born in your head and when was it born in terms of you having somebody working with you alongside your head? So probably in very late 2015, early 16, um, when the idea took shape and form. And then I probably spent another six months whilst trying to juggle my day-to-day -day job, whilst validating the idea. I snuck out of the office from Canary Wharf to meet people in the city to validate my idea. I recall vividly every time I came back from one of those coffee dates, people congratulating me on my private equity interviews, which was not um, correct or true, but obviously suspicion was high in that environment. So um, it was hard validating that along the way, but uh, I spent around six months um, doing so. And when I left full time in summer 16, I went on this speed dating exercise for co-founders, which actually was not really speed dating because it took me three months. But the, the co-founding <laughs> team, for example, um, uh, we, came, we came together really in early November 16. I think that was when Laka truly was born from ideation to, to taking action. And when was the first client onboarded? So we're talking insurance here. Um, the, whole, the whole mantra of um, test and iterate or test and fail fast doesn't really apply to insurance. You have to have a license to sell your first policy to earn your first pound of revenue. So from coming together in November 16 to selling our first policy was in 14 month journey, early 2018, January 18, we went, we got live, basically. Yes, I recall now. So you were one of these rare early stage companies who come on the show because generally I just try and showcase what has worked. For example, next episode is Plaid, who are currently selling themselves for $5.7 billion to Visa. So we can assume that sort of Plaid has worked. But in your case, the model was sufficiently interesting that I really thought it was one that we should know about. And I'm very pleased to hear that you're still going two and a half years later. And it's interesting, I'd forgotten that you come from an insurance family. And it's less a case of the, the sins of the fathers should be visited on the sons as more as the, the sons shall cast off the sins of the fathers or, and amend their, their father's industry or rather take it back to its roots. So 
Talking of roots then, the listeners may or may not, not know to a, a smaller or greater or larger extent the origins of insurance per se in the modern world. So would you like to briefly just talk about the origins of insurance and, and what kind of factors perhaps led it to move away from the sort of the mutual support roots and turn into a, a different kind of model? Not that I'm bitter, but I'll mention my ski insurance again, <laughs> where it's one of those products where people buy it and they're very pissed off. I mean, I buy CDs and, and they work, you know, and I, and I buy phones and they kind of work and, and that kind of stuff. But many people have found they buy insurance and uh, it doesn't work. Having said that, it's, it's a two-way street and there's plenty of fraudsters out there and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, so it's, uh, it's not as simple as it looks on the outside, of course. But anyway, the origins and how the origins started to be sort of forgotten in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's early evidence and it won't go all the way back to 2000 years ago when insurance um, appeared first. I think modern insurance, in quotation marks, is probably 300 years old. Deloitte's pub days, um, people came together to insure ships and the cargo around it. Uh, in similar times and before you had the farmers in the village coming together for the event of um, a farm burning down. So it's this mutuality aspect. You spread a loss across a large group of people in whatever shape or form. And back in the days, it made perfect sense to determine the risk with the best tools available at the time and charge people a premium for that. You had to do that beforehand because people would literally flee in the woods when it comes to premium collection if you were to do it in the current Lacquer model in arrears. But again, um, it is a business model that by and large has not changed over the course of centuries. If you think about it, it's still based on actuarial principles. You estimate future claims forward-looking. You add your margins on top, risk margin, profit margin, expense margin, to get to your, let's say, £10 premiums a month. And that concept more or less has not changed. Um, actuarial science is about forward-looking estimating claims. And that has an adverse outcome potentially because you hardly ever get it right. Either you charge too much or too little, but you cannot estimate claims perfectly despite all the talk around big data. Of course, we've gotten better around that, but nonetheless, it's um, an estimate an assumption to a certain degree. And um, yeah, it's quite interesting how we had this mutuality aspect um, a few decades ago. There were lots and lots and lots of mutual societies, mutual building societies in the country across Europe. More of them changed the business model to become a listed company, um, to take up um, external funding and the likes. And with that, of course, shareholder pressure starts to mount and it's quite difficult to move away from out of line almost. A few insurers have tried to be more generous than others when it comes to claim settlement, but very quickly shareholders would ask to go back in line asking why are your loss ratios higher than with your competitors? Go and fix that. And with that, there is this eternal pressure in the industry to make sure to deliver great returns. And you wonder what the remit is, who comes first, shareholder or customer? And um, yeah, I think we've just gotten off track a little bit because conceptually insurance is a fantastic product. If you are misfortune, you really want to make sure that you have some coverage if your own house burns down. Um, and that applies to hundreds of years ago as it does today. It's just about execution. So I think um, what we have come and tried to do is just reassemble the value chain, put all the pieces in, into a box, shake it up. The output is the same, but the input and the way we go about it is quite different. That's interesting. So yes, I, I, I like the point that it's the corporatization of insurance which has created a challenge because you've got a different class with a different set of interests, which we'll come on to later, but it's obviously an interesting challenge for Lacquer uh, as to how you handle this. Because although you have a mutual approach, 
Uh, you have shareholders. You may have even more shareholders soon, as, uh, as I think you're going to tell us. And how does one balance that out? I mean, you're, you're quite right, of course, about the, the sort of huge, chunky losses, I mean, which nuclear power always comes to my mind. I had a conversation or quite some time ago with the, the odds-on favourite to be the next head of Lloyd's Insurance quite a while ago. And uh, I was being asked at the time, uh, how would one assess nuclear power station risk? Because the problem with nuclear power station risk, if you say, oh, you've got a nuclear power station, Toby, right, okay, that's going to be 500 million per annum premiums. You go, bloody hell, is it? Right, okay, and it's going to be a thin market. So if everyone else says 500 million, you have to pay 500 million or not insure yourself, which you, you can't do. So then what happens, for example, is then no nuclear power station blows up for 50 years and, and, and we've all made load, loads of money. Vice versa, of course, which is I say, oh, yeah, 5 million, yeah, you know, you're not going to blow up. And the market has to charge five million because again it's a thin market. And then a nuclear power station blows up; and it costs five trillion, and, and and you know you don't get the insurance and, and yada yada. So the large chunky stuff is really difficult. And then the more you've got, once you're in, under car insurance, sure you can't predict whether my car will crash or not. But you've got the, I don't know how many cars there are in the UK for the sake of argument, thirty million cars. And if there was one insurer insuring all that, so the, you know the, the number of crashes is is relatively more predictable. So okay, so the corporatization introduced a challenge. So in terms of reinventing the, the mutual mentality, shall we say, and let's talk later about how one sticks that in, into the, the corporate form, how did you go ab about thinking around how to reinvent a more mutual model? And then we'll move on to that, to my concern two and a half years ago, which is, hey, it's great, you're setting up a commune, it's going to be all peace and love, and you're going to love each other. And I really hope it works out, because peace and love sounds great. And I'm into peace and love, and I'm into alignment of interests. But I've been around a bit, and, and not every commune works out, and largely because problems and challenges crop up, and they don't sort of get resolved or to everybody's satisfaction. So going back to your original concept when you were last on the show two and a half years ago, uh, how did you reinvent it in your mind then? And then, most interestingly, I think, what has your experience been of, of doing this model over two and a half years? Where have you had to tweak it uh, a little bit? Where, where have you had to tweak it a lot? And, and where has it worked much better than you actually were, were ever sort of really hoping in your heart of hearts two and a half years ago? So interestingly, the model is more or less still the same as we had it from day one, of course, with tweaks here and there, but um, we didn't have to do the hard pivot because it was just not working. So it was the first big, not surprise, but really great validation in the first place. I think it's all about the answer is in, in incentivization, right? So um, why is LACA model working and why um, do we think it's the way forward? So insurance inherently has this flawed concept as described before. You estimate forward-looking claims and you cannot, cannot get it right. You can get close, but you can't get it right. And with that, you potentially very likely charge more than you need. You have the money in your, on your books first. You have it in your pockets. And from here on, you have to give it back. But of course, nobody likes giving money back that you already earned. And that creates the friction in the claims journey down the line. In fact, settling claims is a pure cost center for insurers. That means I have have your money already. Now I have to give it back. And that costs me actually also money to actually facilitate all of that. And hence, many claims functions are outsourced to what's called third-party administrator. And third-party administrators in the middle of nowhere um, to take care of customers' claims the very pro, uh, pro service you are actually paying for. So I think um, incentivation is, is the answer in all of this, um, in reassembling the value chain, making sure that you profit alongside your customer, not against your customer. And that also comes down to the shareholder topic um, that we talked about before. We have tried to build something, I guess, um, in, in simple terms, which is a win-win-win, 
which the, where the customer wins, Laka wins, and also our partners in the background win because we make money when we settle claims, when we pay out, not when we reject them. And with that, the whole mindset changes altogether because we invest heavily in our claims function. That's our core bread and butter. The more claims we settle, the more money we make. So um, it's really important to us. And with that, the customer wins because we're not incentivized to reject the claim, but to pay out, which is quite perversely the opposite of what's currently going on with checks and balances in place, of course. So again, I think it's possible to reinvent the wheel in a way, and it's not that difficult, but if we now turn to um, the credit industry, in a very simple words, if American Express can do it, we can do it. That was the mantra back in the early days. We can manage credit risk much better. The rest, the risk of customers not paying up retroactively rather than insurers taking money first and manage the underwriting risk alongside. So I think what we learned early on was payment default risk can be managed. We have now 34 months of a track record where we have 99% plus pay-up rates on a monthly basis. So that seems to be working. We've gotten a lot better in explaining our model. You will laugh at the comments we had in our early days. We obviously had a lot of friction in our journey. So we tweaked that and how we explain it. But of course, we had people commenting on Facebook ads an insurance proposition where there's no premium upfront that can't be right. It must be a scam, avoid. So that took a little bit of time and it's a good to be true mantra and mindset. But yeah, surprisingly stable um, since we started out. Okay, so I think it might help people actually to understand how that works in practice. So uh, I take this exercise bike, which no longer will cycle from John O'Groats to London upstairs. I put two proper wheels on and I take it outside because at least then Bridget can actually see things as she's going from place to place to place. And I think, oh, I need this insured because it's sort of so expensive now. It's the world's only home exercise bike that's been adapted for outside. <laughs> it won't be a very fast one. I'll get lacquer to, to insure me. How does that work then? So you don't want any money from me. You say, oh, you're insured, Mike. That's fine. I go, oh, that's good. And then um, in three months time, the bike gets nicked because it's so rare. And I say, oh dear, sorry, Toby, I've, the bike got nicked. Can you pay me £2,000 to make another one? And you go, yeah, sure. So how does it actually work in practice? And then, and then everybody else is in the mutual has to fork out for my bike. Exactly. In very simple terms, we are still based on mutualizing risks. So the Laka Collective, we call it, um, chip in retroactively at the end of the month. So when you come to my website, to our platform, you tell me what the value of your bike is, let's say a thousand pounds. And with that, we'll give you not a fixed insurance premium that we have calculated upfront. We tell you instead that, look, Mike, a thousand pounds bike on average, you can expect to pay on a monthly basis around five pounds. That is based on the last 30 months or so that we have data for, and that is becoming more and more stable as our risk pool grows. So you know roughly what you're paying for each month that is um, moving by, by a few cents left and right now, but you have a fairly good idea. Of course, customers don't like the idea of moving in variable um, payments. So we also give you a maximum price, the worst possible outcome if we have thousands of bikes stolen in a, in a month. So you know the maximum price, which we actually cap at market rate. So you the worst possible outcome if luck has that you pay what you pay elsewhere. But if the Laka Collective takes better care and fewer claims happen, you pay roughly half that and pay around five pounds in that example. So we want really to put accountability onto the Laka Collective. At the moment, there is no incentive for you to take better care. If you don't claim, it's the insurance company that wins. So you might be a bit more sloppy. In our world, the less claims occur, the less the Laka Collective pays altogether. And with that, there's a strong incentive to drive claims as low as possible, which in an extreme would mean if there are no claims in a month, customers wouldn't pay anything. 
and rightfully so, we have not provided any service whatsoever, so we shouldn't be paid. So that's the whole mantra about LACA. Um, we facilitate a risk pool, a group of people, cyclists in our use case to begin with, and um, we ask them to retroactively share the cost of claims the LACA collective incurs in a month. And that has been going quite, quite well. And um, again, once people got their head around it, people start asking why is insurance not done that, that way in the first place, because there are three important things a, we accurately price our collective. You cannot price any fairer than the actual cost of claims. Second, we make money by adding a fee on top of the claim we pay out. So if there are no claims, we don't get paid. And with that, we also make money when we act in the customer's best interest paying out, not the opposite. And lastly, we can offer brutal and full transparency. So every month, customers get a bill showing what their share is they have to chip in. And as a last word, you pay only pro rata for the insured value of your bike so someone with a 10k bike and yes they do exist um, in surprisingly large numbers would pay obviously more than you with your modified um, home stationary bike of 2k for example okay so i get it and that's clear so in terms of capping that says to me that there is a tail risk which you will need to reinsure somehow and actually maybe you have to use an insurer anyway i mean are you a broker or insurer or do you use a reinsurer or how does it work that way you're 100 on the money we reinsure that long tail risk so the cap basically is outsourced to an insurance partner zurich insurance group in that case and we are an insurance intermediary but we have the right to onboard administer and settle claims all in-house so we have basically we look like a fully fledged insurer but we're outsourcing the balance sheet risk as it's called to a third party i see interesting combination so then briefly this sounds like a good idea you had in the first time you validated it because your business is here two and a half years later and you're doing well i mean roughly how many bicycles or peoples are you insuring now so a fun fact is we just passed ten thousand bikes insured worth over 26 million pounds in insured value wow that's quite a lot actually do you realize that's quite a lot that's one big garage full of bikes impressive gosh i should have found this out before my uh, my completely thorough research uh, admitted that fact and so is everyone copying you is no one copying you what's happening briefly in, in the world of sort of remutualized insurance something along these lines so we have not come across anyone copying our model just yet i think it's great validation however there is one company that was quite in the news last week and financial in china um, they have an insurance subsidiary that actually offers critical illness cover in a very similar model. Again, people chiming in retroactively for pa cash payout if the worst happens. It's nice to say that we actually came first, but of course the sheer size of, of Ant Financial gives them a really good um, customer base to sell to. So I think it's great validation that I would say we both in parallel had the same thought and um, I'm quite happy with that, to be honest. So I would very much welcome more people picking up the model. I think the way we go about insurance just makes sense for the mass market, not so much for the nuclear plants as we talked about, but for the mass market, I would welcome anyone to look into this model further. And I think it's just the way to go in the coming years. So that leads to the question of what the future is for you guys. Maybe we'll come on to that uh, after thanking every, everybody and uh, looking at the future of what you're doing, because clearly you're showing that it's succeeding. It's a very interesting model with a number of attractions for customers. But I would suspect it's very hard to suddenly go from insuring 10,000 bikes to 10,000 cars because you're, you know, you're talking about a different thing and we haven't touched on it because we can't touch on everything but there must be a benefit of having a community like cyclists where there's a lot of it's a high trust community as opposed to cars where there's no connection between me and someone else in Scunthorpe or Aberdeen or you know 
Cardiff uh, their car. So I think that's presumably a, a parameter. Before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there. I'd like to thank my brand partners for the podcast, Smart Pension, who are fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. Theenlistedboard.com resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today. So in terms of the the future, Toby, and this question then, which is once you've insured every bike in the country along these lines, well, that's bikes, you've got a tick. Maybe you don't even insure every bike, but you insure a hell of a lot of bikes. What do you do next? Because you can't really move into car insurance or house insurance very easily, can you, with this model? Well, we could, but the question is, do we want to? I think um, know your strength and play on, on that, I think is, is one of the core mantras we are, we are following, pursuing. So yes, we could go into car insurance, um, but I would argue it's harder for us to get to 10,000 car insurance customers than to go to 50,000 um, bike customers, for example. What we're doing is we're really branching out from the first bike enthusiast market we serviced to the city cyclists, the commuters that are obviously growing now with people um, avoiding public transport. And um, then as a third, the real um, growth obviously lies in the e-bikes and the e-scooter market, for example. And there are some tremendous facts out there. 150 million e-bikes are expected to be sold in the European Union in the next 10 years plus. So you see there's a big, big wave coming our way. Um, E-bikes are much more expensive than the traditional city bike. So I think we feel quite strong in a niche and we can service that niche or segment quite well. We've done some deep market sizing and we estimate there's going to be 125 million weekly active cyclists in the European Union by 2025. So obviously that is a large, large market for us to play in and we want to service. And on that note, we have launched in the Netherlands. Well, we are just about to. We got our regulatory license as of late and we are looking to go live in the Netherlands in a matter of days now, which will be our entry gate to the European single market, which is an important thing in a post-Brexit world. So our play is rather to sell our proposition to customers we know and understand very well, know how to reach them across Europe rather than offering 10 different products we would potentially provide a mediocre experience because yes the business model would work other business lines but the claims experience is so important and i would argue i can service an italian cyclist or a german cyclist quite well whereas a british home or car insurance provider i might not have the same edge so to speak so yeah european expansion is definitely on the cards but of course, looking at adjacent products, we just launched a personal accident product, for instance. There are multiple insurance products along the way, but with a clear focus on personal mobility. Interesting. So anyway, it's a classic beachhead strategy, which is you've landed on Normandy Beach and you spread out from Normandy Beach. You don't suddenly try and invade Greece or, or Turkey or anything like that. And I don't know whether you've noticed, uh, Toby, but I think there's quite a lot of bikes in Holland, actually. So they might be interested in bikes over there. It may be a coincidence or not. A, I don't know. So all this interesting expansion presumably needs capital. And I think you've got some interesting news about what you're up to at the moment on that front and do you need capital from nice people who are uh, aligned with being mutuals and and hippies and not wanting dividends or do you want capital from people who are in the markets that you're serving and therefore like some breweries that we may or may not mention you find that actually you want to help the alignment by getting capital from people who are uh, customers which actually keeps the mutual loop going rather than for example i don't know funds come to you from australia from some vc fund that just wants a thousand percent 
ROC kind of stuff. I mean, you know, we talk about corporations, and there's, but there's companies and there's companies. We talk about shareholders, but the shareholders and the shareholders. So is that one of your solutions, which is to, to segment or to choose your shareholders? To your question, we are VC-backed, and I think it's an important source of capital, but you are hinting towards something very exciting. Only this week, we have launched our crowdfunding campaign on Cedars. So um, I think the mutual model is just destined to give it in the hands of the people. We are out there trying to make as many of our existing customers shareholders. I think it goes very well in terms of yeah, the mutuality aspect, taking care of each other, being part of something bigger, getting your full interest and buy-in for that. So I think retention is a really, really important tool here and one of the core reasons why we're doing it. At first count of the pre-registrations, over 50% of our existing customers have bought into um, the, the idea of becoming owners of Lacquer, which is super, super exciting. And the second bit, of course, is we want to branch out and win over new customers. And of course, they are potentially either cyclists themselves, they know of cyclists, they have links to the industry. But I don't want to limit ourselves because Laka has very wide-reaching ambitions. So anyone who feels that there's a mission that they can identify themselves with, I'm more than welcome to take a look. And we're going to be going for another few weeks on, on the platform. What is it in date times? Because always amazingly to me, uh, it's not just a question that listens and downloads carry on for weeks and months that they do, but actually they carry on for years. And I think actually um, one of the things about that, because uh, obviously I've had six years to think about this, uh, but one thing about that is I think because the London FinTech podcast is quite strategic and, and quite blue chip, then even in two years' time, someone thinks, oh, I wonder what Toby said on, on the LFP, because they start off with the big picture, and the big picture is probably very similar. Um, I mean, if you're doing a news-based uh, podcast, nothing wrong with those, just different sort of segments of the market then that ages very rapidly. And what's great news today is sort of out of date in a month's time. So when is your crowdfunding, roughly speaking, going on until in terms of dates? Very fair comment. And since we are on audio here, I can't hold up a newspaper with the date on top of it. <laughs> People will believe you. <laughs> <laughs> no, we are looking to, to close out our round um, towards the last week of November 2020, potentially a few days early, depending on interest and appetite. We have a few ideas we want to get towards, but we have just launched, which is basically the first week of November 20, and we'll run this for another two weeks. So let's talk mid-late November 2020. Excellent. Well, I wish you every success with that. Is there any other shout outs that you'd like to do to listeners? I think cyclists by now should have worked out that they should... Uh check you out if they haven't already then they're very remiss so cyclists should check you out people who want to invest into a business via cedars that's actually trying to align interests between the business which is of course the shareholders as well uh, who own it and the customers then should obviously check you out as well anything else that you're after uh Toby? i think it's something that quite well um cyclists please check out laka would fantastic to have you on board but we are not a UK play only. We are looking to be a European play and potentially a global play. So if you think that LACA might make sense in your home country, we know that other um, cyclists from, from across um, the European Union, for instance, take a, a keen interest. Don't think you're limited because you're in the UK. Um, please, let's have a conversation. Yeah, LACA is, is here to, to grow European-wide. So yeah, I think having um, engagement conversations there would be fantastic. Good. Okay. Well, anyone who's interested in taking Toby up in a conversation on that, do reach out to them. I mean, I think what I would say is that you've been quite modest, Toby, which is that, as I started off the show, it is genuinely 
It is genuinely extremely rare that businesses are really, really innovative. On the show, I've had plenty of innovative businesses, well, well over 100 businesses by now, if this is episode 167. But you guys are radically innovative, shall we say. So that's, that's very rare, firstly. And then secondly, as founders, well, no, but people perhaps who haven't been in founders or in, in small companies or startups may not appreciate, which is that one of the real arts of being a founder and being onto a good message and onto a good business model is that it's so straightforward that you make it sound straightforward and quite easy. However, those are the people and those are the businesses which actually it's very hard to replicate yourself. If I was in Albania, for example, I'm listening to this think, oh, that sounds easy. How hard can it be in the famous Top Gear words? Well, actually, there are people like you who make it sound easy, but they're, they're just being um, modest. It's like sort of the duck, you know, below the surface, there's lots of paddling going on. So I think that, you know, were I to be in Albania or anywhere else ending in IA Estonia or anywhere else ending in different, different letters indeed, then my first plan would be, hey, I think I could do this. Well, look, I'll partner up with Lacquer somehow, you know, in Albania, in, in Estonia, because maybe something in what Mike says is true, which is actually the classic answer to how hard can it be is far harder than you imagine. So I wish you every success with the crowdfunding. Um, I shall uh, not, put, not put wheels on my uh, uh, indoor bicycle, but I think you've perhaps embarrassed me and I shall go now and embarrass Bridget. Uh, I've got embarrassed a few episodes ago about not using my standing desk, so I'm now being embarrassed and I shall take off all the clothes that are hanging on the exercise bike. And I did actually use it recently, actually, and give it more of a go. So thank you very much for that, Toby, and I wish you every success in the future. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance we could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city I'm so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so great With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye 
the firelight dance with me. Watch 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 the firelight.